So if you have a Bible or you have your Bible on your technology, you can turn to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians. Don't be afraid if you say, I, I don't even know where that is, what that means. Look in the table of contents. That's fine. It's found in the New Testament after Colossians. Over these next couple of months, we'll be considering Paul's two letters to the Thessalonian church. That's just a church that, um, that was formed in a city called Thessalonica. Uh, the, con the exact dating of these letters is uh, not absolutely certain, uh, but most feel they represent some of the earlier of uh, Paul's letters, probably, though, after Galatians. Um, and they were likely written from Corinth around 49 to 54 A.D. So this is, these letters are written really just about 20 years after the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, when, we, when we look back just for a little context, we see the forming of the church in Thessalonica in Acts 17. So maybe you want to jot down, if you want to cross-reference Acts 17. Uh, we see that Paul, along with Silas and Timothy, visited this Grecian city of Thessalonica. It's, uh, it's in modern-day Greece. Um, it's, it, at the time, it was the capital of the Roman province of Macedonia. This was during his second of three major missionary journeys. It was his practice, it was Paul's practice um, at the time when he would go into a city or a province to first visit the local synagogue. So that was kind of ground zero for Paul. Um, some folks that maybe knew of the Old Testament scriptures. And so he goes into the synagogue. He comes in as a stranger, right? But he goes in on three consecutive uh, Sabbath days. And I'm going to read just quickly from Acts 17, 2 and 3. It says that he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. Then it says in quotes, this Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. So he's taking the prophetic words of God's, God's scripture and they pointing to the anointed one that would come, the Messiah, connecting that with the themes of the suffering servant in the Old Testament. And he's then saying there is a historical man that walked the earth. His name is Jesus. Messiah has come. Now in that, we, we are told in Acts 17.4 that some Jews believed. We don't get the sense that it was a large Jewish um, believing response. But it also tells us that many Greeks believed and not a few. It's an interesting phrase, but it says not a few prominent women. And scripture always holds the place of women much highly than the, than the cultures would have in that day. Not a few prominent women, Luke tells us in Acts 17. Um, soon after this, Paul and his team receive severe opposition. There's a, there's a mob created, kind of a, a band of ruffians, if you will, and they are encouraged to kind of go, to go after Paul and Timothy and Silas. And they're, they're riled up by some, some of the Jews in the community. Um, they go after them and they go to the house of a man named Jason who is hosting them. They don't find 
Paul and his team, but they dragged Jason out and some of the other new believers before the city officials and basically say these guys are housing troublemakers and in essence uh, people that are, are uh, leading toward treason because they're proclaiming this Jesus as what? King, right? As king. Um, these men get put in jail. Eventually they post bond and are freed. Uh, they, this very, very young set of believers protect Paul and Silas and Timothy and smuggle them out in the night and send them on to Berea. Now, does this sound like the backdrop? Does this sound like fertile ground for a thriving church? <laughs> that they immediately, within weeks, listen, within weeks, this whole community of hearing the gospel, they're slandered. They receive tremendous opposition. Some of them are thrown in prison. Does that sound like the, the, the fertile soil of a thriving church community? Well, it was. <laughs> it was. Sometimes I got to admit, I look at stories like that and I say, how many more advantages do we have than these folks had? But God had established his work. And the gospel will not be stopped by men. You know, Randy, it always seems like following Jesus really shook up the culture. I mean, all the way along, you know, from the time Jesus was on the scene. Whatever, whatever was following Jesus really threw the culture into a shock. Yeah. Does it still? Yeah. Sure does. These letters that, that Paul writes to these churches, this church um, are very personal. Uh, they're not as heavy on what we might call doctrine, <laughs> um, but they, uh, as compared to some of his other letters, but they, in them he looks to encourage, he looks to counsel, he looks to exhort this infant church. The letters uh, really represent... Love for the church. Love for the church community. A longing to nurture what life together should look like in Christ. And God's still doing that. So when we hear these words, and I'll be talking about some of the things, I'll be talking about them and they, but we also have to hear we and us and I when we hear these letters, we got to realize that God is still writing love letters to us. He's still speaking these words to us and telling us, this is what I want my community to look like, to be like, to live like. 1 Thessalonians 1. It's not long, only 10 verses. Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers. We continually remember 
before our God and Father, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. In spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell us how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. So quickly, what, as you hear those words, what themes jump, jump out at you? And maybe I could ask too, and not that... Is there an overarching theme that you see? What themes jump out? Okay, joy. Yeah. Anything else? Genesis. I'm sorry? Jesus was the only one that could rescue them. Good. Good. Perseverance. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's right. Yep, yep. So you, you can hear in these words, you know, it, it says Paul, uh, Silas, and Timothy. These are markedly words of Paul. Um, you know, again, Silas and Timothy were his companions. Maybe, maybe uh, they could come to the thoughts. They, they had experienced this community with them. Um, but you just sense the love, right, from these men to the church, and it's a love that's striking. It's not, it's not just a love that's just an affectionate feeling. It's a love that literally drives them on their knees. We remember you. One of the commentators I read said, maybe we'd need to ask the Lord to work on our memory a little bit. <laughs> Let, help me to remember people more. And as they remember them, it drives them to their knees, praying for them. And then as, as Paul continues, it, it seems to me, and, and this is just how I am kind of encapsulating this morning, that, that we really see hear him speak of what I'm going to call the impact and the influence of the gospel. The impact and the influence of the gospel. 
Now, the gospel is good news. It's the good news that though mankind, including me, including you, has rebelled against God in our sin, God has made a way for reconciliation with him. We say, well, it's getting to heaven one day. Well, that's, that's part of it, but it's not about getting to heaven one day. It's about reconciliation with your creator. And that will include getting to heaven one day because his desire is that he dwells with his people and his people dwell with him forever, right? But that starts now. So he, he has made a way for reconciliation. He does this by offering his perfect son on the earth as a perfect man and to die on a Roman cross as a substitute for us a sacrifice uh, for the punishment we deserve for our sins. Three days later, we're, we're told in Scripture and in history that this Jesus, this God-man, rose from the dead. And that in rising from the dead, we see that his victory was accomplished over sin and death. Yes and amen. We see that life is only found in him. I am, the I am the resurrection and life. Jesus is like, here I am. I'm never going to die again. And we see that he precedes all those who will find eternal life and eventually, even in a new body, he is the first fruits of the resurrection. We have rebelled. God has made a way. And this becomes your good news. Listen, it becomes your good news when you simply turn you stop going the direction you're going in, in, in the stubbornness of your own heart and you turn and you say, Jesus, I am a sinner. Jesus, you are my Savior. Sounds simple, doesn't it? It's because he did all the work already for you. When you turn in repentance and faith, Jesus, all who call upon the name of the Lord, will be saved. In verse 1, Paul offers this standard greeting of grace and peace. But even that encapsulates the gospel, you could say. Leon Morris, I'll, I'll quote him a couple of times this morning. He says, there can be no true peace until the grace of God has dealt with sin. There can be no shalom. There can be no peace, no wholeness, no it's not just a lack of complete restoration until God has dealt with sin according to his love and his grace in Christ. But it doesn't just end there. It begins there. Right? So the gospel is not just that moment. The gospel then works out in your life. It's all that Christ does through that work. You're being restored to God. We're being restored, hopefully, to one another. You're being restored within yourself. God will bring restoration to all creation. He'll renew it. It was refined once by water. It'll be refined in the end by fire. There's a fit. So we can say, in a sense, the gospel is, and the Bible is clear about this, both a finished work, what we, in you it's called in Scripture justification, you're made right before God, and it's an ongoing work. 
what the Bible talks about sanctification, as he's changing you to one day actually match up to who he has made you to already be. But it just starts like this. Jesus, I'm a sinner. Jesus, you're a savior. I receive you. You can do that today. It sounds so easy. Yeah, it wasn't for Jesus, but it is for you. Let's briefly uh, consider the impact of this good news as we hear it in this chapter. First, we can say that this community, their position with God and one another has changed. They're called the church, which literally means being uh, uh, called out, that they are God's family. We remember that when Jesus stood at the tomb of a dear friend named Lazarus, he did what? He called him out, right? He called him out. Lazarus was dead as a doornail, as uh, Charles Dickens said of Scrooge, right? He's dead as a doornail. He's wrapped tight in his grave clothes. But he says, Lazarus, come out. That's what he does with us. He calls us out. He calls us out of the tomb and all those things that were keeping us there, the sin that so easily entangles. He calls us out of death and sin and gives us life. And once we are completely alienated from God, Colossians 1.21 says, we are enemies in our minds as shown by our evil behavior. It's, what's going on in our evil behavior just kind of already shows what's going on in our minds and hearts. But now these believers, you talk about position, their position is squarely, we're told in verse 1, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. They were once disconnected, spiritually dead. That was the reality of who they were. But now they find themselves abiding in the vine. It's also kind of cool to think about, if you could, just for a second, too. And, and Paul probably plays on a lot of themes here. The church in Thessalonica, but they're also in God the Father and Jesus Christ. So it's almost like you see these two realities, and this is true, still true for us. These two locations. So they were in Thessalonica... They are, we're the church in Morris, in Liberty, on earth, on the ground, real dirt, right? Real stuff, but also, also located where? In the Father, in the Son. Both true realities. No longer are they positioned, as verse 10 speaks about, under the wrath of God, but they're positioned as those who have been, as verse 4 says, as those who are chosen and loved by God. It's a complete change. No longer and now. And this also changes their position to one another. Drastically. This is what's supposed to happen. <laughs> it doesn't just happen. They need to continually work to fostering it. But this is the deal. They're no longer strangers. They're no longer enemies. They're no longer competitors. They're no longer those of, of high social standing and low social standing. They're brothers and sisters. They're family. And that's the way they're supposed to treat one another. Leon Morris says, Barriers insurmountable to men were done away in Christ. Barriers insurmountable to men were done away in Christ. 
Their position with God and one another has changed forever. Another impact. The second, the, the impact of the gospel seen in the fact that it was delivered and received, as verses 5 and 6 tell us, this was brought out this morning, uh, not simply by words, not simply with words, not just rational, logical, theological, intellectual, theoretical, philosophical arguments, but with the what? Power of the Holy Spirit of God. It's this spirit that brought deep conviction from the deliverers of the words to the receivers of the words that they understood them to be God's words, God's truth, God's reality. Now listen, there's a major difference between religion that is based solely on words as opposed to the life-changing impact of the power of God's living Holy Spirit. We have to understand that. The Pharisees and the Sadducees had the words, man, but they didn't have life. Now, there must be words. Faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ, Romans 10, 17. The Bible itself is God's word. John the Apostle even speaks of Jesus as God's word, God's logos, all that he has to say encapsulated in Christ. But religion, even Christian religion, that is, that is based on words alone is void of power. It may be a collection of doctrines. It may be a collection of true doctrines, good doctrines. It may be a collection of ideas and ideals and structures and standards and traditions. It may even lead toward outward compliance, but it's still void of power, the power that changes the inner man. Remember, Ephesians 6.17 teaches that the word of God is the sword of what? The Spirit. The Spirit. How is this Holy Spirit power manifested? Consider what Paul says was happening among these new believers. Verse 9 tells us that they're turning away from idols and to God. Does this mean that they just threw away some statues? They may have. But more profoundly, it meant, as I spoke of earlier, repentance. It meant a change of direction and a change of devotion. You see in Acts 2, right? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to prayer and to the breaking of bread. Devotion. Not just punching my card for an hour and a half a week. Devotion. It was a change of direction, a change of devotion. They tell us how you, were, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And this word serve actually has to do with being a servant or being a slave. But it's only with God that you can be both a son and a slave. <laughs> and it's only, it's only with God that you can be a slave that you actually find true freedom. 
No longer was there a devotion. No longer was they, were they slaves to idols. No longer should we or do we need to be slaves to our money, slaves to our materialism, slaves to our insecurity, slaves to our pride, slaves to false religion, slaves to an obsession with sex or power or work or status or self-reliance or self-indulgence. Our devotion is to be turned to God and to serve him only. And then all those other activities of life filter through your devotion to the Lord. The power of God's spirit was manifest in a trio of virtues that Paul likes to talk about. Faith, love, and hope. None of these virtues were, virtues were left in the realm of the abstract. They worked out in the real world. They worked out when you're taking your kids to school. They worked out when you're having a family dinner. They worked out when you're at the local school gym, at the, ball, you know, at the basketball game. They worked out when you're working in, in the middle of your monotony. They worked out when you're alone. Like, they worked out in real life. They weren't just abstract ideas. Faith produced their work their love prompted their labor. Their hope inspired their endurance, for all verse 3 tells us. Their faith is active in good deeds. Their hope courageously drives them on in the face of opposition. Their agape, that's the word there, their agape love is truly a labor of love. Listen, this love, this, this word labor, it, it connects labor and love. This agape love. And, and it means, uh, again, Leon Morris writes... It denotes laborious toil, unceasing hardship born for love's sake. Unceasing hardship, hardship born for love's sake. Is that the way we're willing to love one another? John Stott says, together, faith, love, and hope completely reorient our lives. As we find ourselves being drawn up toward God in faith, out toward others in love, and on toward the return of Christ in hope. It's power of the Holy Spirit, another impact. Power of the Holy Spirit, verse 6 tells us, was manifested in the fact they experienced the fruit of the Spirit of joy in the face of severe suffering. They didn't cave under pressure. They didn't wallow in self-pity. There wasn't bitterness or fantasies of revenge, or if there were, they put them aside. <laughs> Tim Keller, uh, I heard Tim Keller speak. I listened to a blog, and he told a story about how he had a house downstate, and it was kind of on a ridge of a hill. And they loved the house, but one problem with the house is the basement was always wet. Basement was always wet, always wet, always wet. And then they'd have a summer that it was like super dry. Everything was dry. Everything was brown. But guess what? Their basement was always wet. And like, what's the deal? And a guy tells him eventually that had lived there for a while. He goes, oh, that's easy. You have an underground stream running right through your house. It's an undercurrent. It's always there. It doesn't matter how, how lush things are outside or how dry things are outside. This undercurrent is always running down under your house. And he says, that's what joy should be for the believer. Doesn't mean you're always frolicking around. Guess what? Sometimes upstairs things are parched and dry. And you're in the wilderness. But you know the Lord loves you. You know the Lord's doing some. The Lord, you know the Lord's going to win. 
And there's an undercurrent of contentment, an undercurrent of joy. How is this possible? Because we see that the power of the Holy Spirit led them, as verse 10 tells us, to an eager expectation of the Lord's return. They had this endurance inspired by hope because they kept one, on the, one eye on the ground and one eye fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of their faith, and they knew he was coming back. They knew that he would return and make things all right, all things right. Is Jesus still returning? Is Jesus still returning? Right, so I would say, that we with them are in the last chapter of, of the book, of this age, okay? We're in the last chapter. We just don't know what page we're but we're, we're a lot further along than they even were, and they were eagerly expecting the Lord. How eagerly should we be expecting the Lord? That grounded them. It gave them joy knowing that he would consummate all things. So the, the, the gospel has a profound impact on the believer, forever changing our position with God and one another. And its substance is not of words only, but of the power of the Holy Spirit manifesting itself from the inside out. Very quickly, lastly, if this is the impact of the gospel, what is the influence of the gospel? And I would say simply this, the influence of the gospel is that it wasn't contained in their own community. It wasn't contained in their own community. It was there. It was all getting worked out. But it rang out. It rang out and became known everywhere. John Stott says, It is by the gospel that the church exists. And by the church, the gospel spreads. And then by the gospel, the church exists. Right? And by the church... The gospel spreads over and over and over again. That's the idea. It rings out. They both followed the example of Paul, Silas, and Timothy, more importantly of the Lord, and they became an example. They actually became a model, Paul tells them, for, for the surrounding believers, for their unbelieving neighbors. Their faith was so evident that the gospel message continually resounded. That's, that's the tense that the word's in. It's continual. And it's like, a, it's like the blow of a trumpet that would be continual or a roll of thunder that is continual. Listen, this community that we're reading about this morning is likely a few months old when Paul writes this letter. How long have you been in the Lord? How much more advantages, how many more advantages do we have as a community? We have much to learn from them. They didn't simply agree on certain doctrines or adopt a new religious system. The good news of Jesus was the truth of God. It had profound impact and influence through their community. Their position with God and one another was transformed. The message was received and lived not just with words, but in power, the power of the Holy Spirit. They changed their devotion. They lived with godly virtue. They found joy in the trenches of trial, always hoping in the Lord's return. In spite of all the technology of this age, and God has used it for the good and Satan used it for, for evil, let me tell you this. Here's something that's still true. 
Nothing will replace the resounding influence of the church faithfully being the church. That's what's going to impact your neighbors. The Holy Spirit transforming the weak and the lowly. The broken, fragmented, misguided individual lives into a community of faith, love, and hope in Jesus Christ. I'll just read a paragraph that, that John Stott wraps his thoughts on these verses up with, and then I'll invite Bob up to lead us in communion. Just a couple sentences. John, John Stott writes, No church can spread the gospel with any degree of integrity, let alone credibility, unless it has been visibly changed by the gospel it preaches. We need to look like what we're talking about. It's not enough to receive the gospel and pass it on. We must embody it in our common life of faith, in love, joy, peace, righteousness, and hope.